Well, tonight, as I've said, we're in Romans, and so let's continue in worship as we read together. Romans chapter 3 tonight. Uh, And Romans chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 21 through to the end of the chapter. So Romans chapter 3, and we know that something that's been uh, standing out or popping out of the text week after week is the, the righteousness of God. And so again, we come to this theme of righteousness. So Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 21. If you're reading from a pew Bible, you'll see it there on page 1131. So this is God's Word to us here this evening. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting. It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us uh, this evening, and we look forward to hearing uh, Philip unpack it for us in just a few moments. Well, thanks, John, for your welcome, and uh, everybody that welcomed us on the way in. It's really good to be here at Hill Street tonight. Um, we do have an evening service in McQuiston, but I just happen to have somebody covering for me tonight, and so the message from John comes through, and normally you're thinking, well, that's, that's the first night off I've had. There's no way I'm driving all the way to Lurgan. But it says, would you preach in Romans 3, 21 to 31? And if you're a preacher of the gospel, then that thrills your heart. And there's nothing more that you'd want to do than to come and do that. So it's really um, exciting to be here and to open up God's Word with you tonight. Um, As I said earlier, John was a year ahead of me in Union and uh, with a few things in common as we went through. Uh, We were back-to-back presidents of the Ministry Students Council. Um, That might sound very impressive and prestigious, but really we're the only people that could get to do the job. And there was this rule in the Ministry Students Council that was long-standing for many, many years, 
where every year you paid your fees and that went towards running events and buying books for first years and, and different things and some contributions towards mission. And the rule that went for a long, long time in the MSC was that if you got married or your wife had a baby during your year of study, then as a gesture of goodwill, you got your fees back. So a really good thing, isn't it? You know, you're a student, you're struggling for um, money, and so just a, a little small gesture on behalf of the Students' Council. The other thing that John and I had in common during our time in Union was that we were single. And uh, I didn't mind this rule, but John seemed to have a real problem with it. And so his, his enduring legacy as president of the MSC is that he got rid of that rule. And then I didn't bring it back either because we thought there's no chance we're ever going to get our fees back. Now, I got married last summer, and I believe there's a big wedding coming up not too far away. And I'm sure John is absolutely sick to death of all the advice that he's getting at this stage. And, you know, people mean well. You like to hear advice from people, but, you know, it's usually the same things over and over again. And you're just thinking, okay, let's get this over and done with so we can just get married. But one bit of advice I imagine you've probably heard in the dozens of times now is never go to bed without dealing with the argument. Don't go to bed angry. It's good advice, isn't it? Um, I've nearly followed that over my past year and a bit. But it's good advice because there's something in us, okay? There's something within our nature that likes to avoid problems rather than deal with them. And whether it's in a marriage or whether it's in the workplace or whether it's with friends, if there's a problem, some of us like to barge in and fix it, but most of us don't like confrontation. And most of us would rather let the problem fester and build rather than deal with it. And of course, that's not good because rather than being sorted, it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. Now, you can accuse the Apostle Paul of many things, but you can't accuse him of avoiding the difficult issues. And you can't avoid him of not dealing with the problem. Paul knows, and you've been working through these chapters over the past few weeks, Paul knows what our problem is, doesn't he? And he makes it so clear to us that our problem is the problem of sin. This is what Paul has been outlining for us from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to last week in chapter 3, verse 20. That God's wrath has been revealed against all who sin, both Jews and Gentile. Our problem as a race is the problem of sin. Sometimes people like to pit Paul against Jesus as if what the apostle teaches is different from what Jesus taught. But just as Paul knew that this was our greatest need, so too did Jesus. In McQuiston at the minute, we're working through Mark's gospel in the mornings. And just last week, we reached the story of the paralyzed man. You, you know the story, the man's paralyzed, he can't walk. And so he goes to see Jesus, but the building's full. And so his mates, they carry him up onto the roof they break open a hole. They lower him down to Jesus. And when Jesus sees this man, he says he has compassion on him. But he doesn't see this man's greatest need as his physical disability. He looks at this man and he sees straight away what the problem is. And it's the same for all of us. 
It's the problem of sin. And his greatest need is for his sins to be forgiven. So when he's lowered down, what does he say? And it irks the Pharisees. He says, having seen their faith, son, your sins are forgiven. Because while the world around him might have looked at this man and thought, well, his biggest need, what would really help him out is if he could walk. Jesus saw the real problem was his sin. And his greatest need, which is the greatest need for all of us, is for those sins to be forgiven. If you were here last week or you listened later like I did, Stafford so helpfully showed us the problem we have today in communicating the message of the gospel is that often we've changed our understanding of the word sin. And what the Bible calls good, society often calls evil and the other way around. We have in the language of Romans 1, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In his really helpful book, Pride, Identity and the Worship of Self, IPC minister Matthew Roberts explains this changing attitude to sin this way. He says, one of the things which has most alarmed Christians in the last decade or so is the sudden realization that the secular society around us is not characterized by its moral apathy. It's not the case, as it perhaps once was, that people don't care about evil things. But it's that things that the Bible calls evil are seen as positively good. And doing and celebrating them is a form of moral heroism. Even more stunning to many Christians is that that which the Bible calls good is not seen as merely unnecessary, but as positively evil. So to believe in marriage is wicked, but to flaunt sexual perversion is virtuous. To encourage young people to sexual restraint is abusive, but to urge them to sexual experimentation is decent and right and good. To kill unborn children is right. To suggest that their lives should be protected is morally appalling. He writes, my generation of Christians grew up with the expectation that some people would find our views on such things dated, irrelevant, or amusing, but now we dare not mention them in public for fear of losing our jobs. So we look at the world around us and we see the problem of sin so clearly, don't we? We see how it has corrupted our society in so many ways. But of course, sin isn't the, just the world's problem. It's not only the world out there, but sin is the problem in here, in our hearts. Even in a very respectable church like Hill Street Lurgan, left to our own devices, none of us seek after God. None of us do what is right. We all at different times and in different ways go our own way and do our own thing and fail to live in a way that honors the one who made us. Sin is our greatest problem. And Paul has spent all of this time painstakingly making it clear that it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what your background is, when it comes to sin, we're the same. We're all guilty and we're all deserving of God's just wrath. So what do we do about that? That's the wrong question, isn't it? But it's, what is God going to do about that? Let's just have a quick thought experiment. What would you do about this problem if you were God? 
We all have different personalities, don't we? And so how we react to things often depends on our personality. Some of us, we really like justice. And we really like things to be fair. And we like things to be done by the book at all times, no matter what. We love rules. We know the rules. We'd make a much better VAR than Darren England would. And we think, if I was God, everybody would get exactly what they deserve. The punishment would fit the crime. It's only right. You can't complain. But some of us, though, we find that attitude goes really against our nature. We find it grating. We find it difficult. We find it hard to think about. We know in some sense that that's right and that's fair, but it just isn't palatable to us. And so we think, well, if I'm God, I'd, I'd, I'd find a way to look the other way, to move on from sin, to just not make a big deal of it, because we just find it so hard to carry through. Now, the reality is neither of us are going to be fully one or the other, or sure we're not, but we want both. We want sin to be punished, but we also really appreciate God's mercy and God's grace. And so we're thankful that it's not our job to deal with the problem of sin, because how do we bring those two things together? And so Romans 3.21 is a turning point in the book of Romans. In Romans 1.16.17, Paul started to point to this when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so he's setting us up. He's saying the righteousness of God is revealed. But before I tell you what that is, let me tell you why it's needed. And so he spends the rest of chapter one, all of chapter two, and the beginning of chapter three showing so clearly our problem of sin. He comes back to this thought. Do you see it there in verse 21? But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been revealed. He's coming back to the point that he started to make in 1.17. The righteousness of God has been revealed. And this is the answer to the problem of sin. This is how God is both fair and just and gracious and merciful. This is the heart of the gospel, the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. This is the sort of truth we can stake our lives on. Martin Luther called Romans 3 the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. And why? Because in it, the righteousness of God the remedy to our sin is revealed clearly to us. We're going to see that in five ways tonight. Some of them are much shorter than others in verses 21 to 31. Five ways God's righteousness is very good news for us here this evening. So let's start first of all with righteousness revealed. And we'll see this in verse 21. And this, this is really important for us to grasp. That righteousness doesn't come to us as a gift by accident. But it was planned by God to be revealed to us at just the right moment. 
Let's look at the whole of verse 21 there. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So what does manifested mean? It means to be made clear, to be revealed. And the emphasis here is that this was not plan B, but the Scriptures have been promising this and showing us that it's coming. And sometimes we can approach the gospel and we can have a very wrong idea of it. Because we can approach the gospel as if God was surprised by our sin. As if it came out of nowhere and he had to scramble madly to try and come up with a solution. And Jesus was the best he could think of in short notice. But we know that nothing takes our God by surprise. And as you work through the Old Testament, the consistent promise comes that God will deal with the problem of sin once and for all. So when it says the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law, it doesn't mean that what came before was irrelevant. But it means that God has made a way for us to be made right that doesn't involve having to keep the law. Because we aren't able to keep the law. And we aren't able to earn our righteousness. The history of God's people, the history of Israel shows that. No matter how often God rescued his people, no matter how often he called them back to himself, they always wandered away. They were never able to measure up. They were never able to live obedient lives. They were never able to keep their end of the covenant agreement. And God knew this. And so he had to make a way for righteousness apart from measuring up to the law's demands. But this doesn't mean that the law is irrelevant. The law and the prophets promised and pointed to this all along. If we had more time, we could do a survey, but let me just read one of the most famous examples, famous promises of this in Jeremiah 31. This is the promise. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So what's been revealed here has been promised. It was always the plan. This was always what God was working towards. And so we don't get to Romans 3 and Paul says, the righteousness of God has suddenly been thought of. No, the righteousness of God has been revealed. The plan is coming to fruition. The second thing we're going to see is righteousness received. See this in verses 22 and 23 particularly. Because it's one thing, isn't it, for God's righteousness to be revealed. But how do we take hold of it? How do we receive it? How does it make any tangible difference to us? And again, Paul is really clear. Look at verse 22 and see what he says there. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. 
Now, I know that we're very used to this language in church. So we can take for granted just how incredible this good news is. What Paul is saying is that we can obtain the righteousness of God, right standing before God, not by measuring up, not by fulfilling the law's demands, not by pulling ourselves together, but simply by faith, by believing in the Lord Jesus. That's it. It's that simple. We can have a right standing with God. We can have our sins forgiven. We can have our relationship with God restored. And it's just by faith alone in Christ alone. Simply by believing. It seems too good to be true. But this is what is offered to us in the gospel. Not only is it that simple, but the saving righteousness of God to all who believe makes it clear that there's no restrictions on this. This fulfills the promise God made to Abraham when he said the whole world would be blessed by his offspring because all who believe from every tribe and tongue and nation can in faith receive the righteousness of God. Again, promised in the Old Testament like in Isaiah 43 when he said, fear not for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you up. I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Look down again at verse 23. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, familiar words we hear all the time. But isn't it so clear how good this is? We're all on the same level. We all sin. We all fall short. There's no distinction. There's no A team and B team. There's no in-group. We all come the exact same way simply by faith. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? Well, in Romans 1.21, it's clear that humanity, rather than honoring God or glorifying God, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So sin at its heart is choosing lesser glory. It's idolatry. It's worshiping things other than the Creator. And so we all sin by failing to honor or glorify God, instead worshiping and honoring created things. Thus, we fall short of the glory of God in how we live our lives. And we cannot fix this in our own strength. We received God's righteousness by faith. Righteousness revealed, righteousness received. But how does this actually work? Well, we need to move on to righteousness paid for. When Keith Getty and Stuart Townend wrote the hymn In Christ Alone, it very quickly became a favorite around the world. I'm sure it's the same here. Now, actually, it used to be when you did funerals, people would want, who didn't really have a church connection, would know maybe Psalm 23. Now I find I know In Christ Alone. That's how popular it's become. It's a hymn that's become a huge part of life for many of us. We're not singing it tonight, but it's a sort of thing we sing all the time. 
In the BBC's Song of Praise 2013 countdown of the nation's favorite hymns, and Christ alone came second on the popular vote. But just because it's so familiar to us now does not mean that it's without controversy. In 2012, it made headlines, probably not over here, but at least in the States, when a hymn committee of the Presbyterian Church USA wanted to add the hymn to their new hymnal. But in doing so, they wanted to make a change. They had a problem with one particular line. The original that we sing is, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Their suggested replacement was, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And do you see the difference? In both really true, both things that happily want to sing. But Gideon Townend refused the change. Now, what's the problem here? Are they saying that the love of God is not magnified for us on the cross? Well, I hope not, because of course it is. But the writers thought that changing the line removed something really important and really central to the heart of the gospel. You cannot just remove the concept of wrath to make Jesus more palatable or easy to accept. This is what Keith Getty said at the time. He said, we believe altering the lyrics would remove an essential part of the gospel story as explained throughout scripture. The main thread of what we see revealed throughout the Old and New Testaments is the need for man to be made right with God. The provided path toward reconciliation came through Christ's predetermined and perfect sacrifice on the cross, satisfying God's wrath once and for all. The hymnal committees wanted to change the lyrics to focus on how Christ's death on the cross magnifies God's love for the world, and indeed God's love was magnified in Calvary's hill. Yet the way this occurred was through Christ doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, shedding his own perfect blood to atone for our sins. God is not just unless he inflicts upon all sin and wrongdoing the penalty it deserves. While we may think it severe, we desperately need God's wrath, a holy and just response to evil to restore the broken world in which we live. Now, even if we agree with Keith Getty and Stuart Townend, and I do, on some level at least, we can feel the pull towards what that committee was trying to do. Because wrath isn't a word that's easily on our lips. We don't like talking about wrath or anger. It feels harsh. It feels uncomfortable. It feels confronting. There's part of us, even if it's just on some small level, there's a part of us that wants to ask the question, is it really necessary? If God is all-powerful and God can do whatever He wants, why must He punish evil? Why does sin have to be paid for? Why can He not just look the other way, so to speak? Why does the Bible talk so much about His wrath? It's not what people want to hear. But scratch a little bit deeper. And we see that in reality, we do all want God to punish sin, just maybe not our own. Because we all want justice, at least for everyone else, if not ourselves. Think of our anger at politicians or at war or the other injustices we see around the world. We demand a response. We say, this is not fair. These things rightly make us angry. We want things to be put right. And so too does God. In fact, He demands it. His holiness demands it. 
Here's how the evangelist Rebecca Manley Pippard helps explain it. She says, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but it's his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. She's saying sin is what is tearing us apart. It's what ruins God's good creation. And so how could we call him loving or even good if he was indifferent to that which was ruining it? Theologian Miroslav Wolf puts it helpfully when he says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. So the Bible talks about God's anger at sin because he should be angry about it and so should we. And if God is going to be a God of justice and he is that, then punishment must be paid. Sin has to be paid for. We cannot escape this, by, this concept in the Bible even if we wanted to. What did we see back in chapter 2 verse 5? A day of wrath is coming in the future because of your hard and impenitent heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And we see a vision of what this will look like in Revelation 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? This is a clear biblical reality that we cannot hide from, we cannot ignore, we must confront head on, even if it's uncomfortable. And this is the beauty of Romans 3, because it shows us just how this works. Paul, having built up this picture, showing us so clearly the problem of sin in our lives, shows us that Jesus bears himself the wrath our sins deserved. Look at verse 23 and 24, first of all, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We don't use the word redemption an awful lot anymore. We maybe redeem a discount code when we're shopping online and that's about it. But if we're familiar with the Bible and churchy language, it's a word that means an awful lot to us. And we can lose sight of it very easily. The word redemption and the biblical context comes from the world of slavery and commerce. And one could redeem a slave by purchasing their freedom. You paid the price so that they would go free. Do you see the beautiful truth that this is? Jesus paid the price for our freedom. But it goes further and deeper than that. We keep reading in verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation or maybe sacrifice of atonement in your translation by his blood to be received by faith. And if we don't use the word redemption very often, we use the word propitiation even less. But it's really important for us to understand because it's not just that Jesus paid the price for our redemption. 
Propitiation means that he turned aside God's wrath from his by his very own blood. He bore the wrath our sins deserve. The perfect, sinless Son of God paid the price of our redemption and bore the wrath each and every one of us deserve. Rise is righteousness a free gift because Jesus did it all. He took it all. And his righteousness, his perfect record then becomes ours. Righteousness revealed. Righteousness received and paid for. And we move on to righteousness confirmed. Have a look at the end of verse 25 and into 26. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, when it says that God passed over former sins, it doesn't mean that he was indifferent to them. We know that's not the case. God punished sin in the past. We see that in the Old Testament very clearly. But what it means is that he did not punish sin to the full extent it deserved. He provided an opportunity for humans to repent, to turn from their sin and back to him. And so if anyone, because of this, because of God's slow to anger, if they were questioning or judging God's righteous character, questioning why some sin was left unpunished, on the cross, Jesus set forth as the one who bore the full punishment that all those sins deserve, therefore demonstrating God's righteous character, that he will ultimately punish all sin. The death of Jesus vindicates God's righteousness, showing that the forgiveness granted did not compromise his justice. We thought about how we might respond to the problem of sin if we were God, how some of us would want to be just and really deal with things, and some of us would want to show mercy and overlook justice. God does not choose between the two. He's both just and the one he justifies. And so we finish with righteousness' response. And we see that really in verses 27 to 31, we need a few weeks to do all these verses justice, but you can see the big idea clearly there. In light of all that God has done for us in Christ, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And so Paul's saying, look, because God has done this, because he has dealt with the problem of sin, we do not boast because we have nothing to boast about. Our righteousness, our standing before God is entirely what He has done. We bring nothing to it apart from our sins. Boasting is ruled out. He's saying it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter what side of the town you grew up on. It doesn't matter what race you are, what nation you're from. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. Forgiveness is an entirely a free gift offered to all who will believe. 
And so do we then forget about the law? No, he says, in response, we hold the law and we do our best to live it out. We come to Jesus. We trust in Jesus. We believe in all that he has done for us, and that is it. Sin is the problem for us all. And left to our own devices, we would be stuck in our sin with no way out. But as we open the service with, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the righteousness of God can be ours. This is the gospel. This is the beauty of all that God has done for us in Christ. And we simply need to come to him in faith. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you. We thank you for the good news that this is. That nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. Father, we come before you this evening and we are sinners. You know our hearts. You know the areas of our lives where we seek to go our own way where we seek to live without reference to you, where we don't glorify you, but we glorify ourselves. Father, would you forgive us? But we are so thankful that on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. So here in the death of Christ, we live. Father, this is such good news. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it even if we tried. But would you make this truth, the beautiful truth of all that Jesus has done for us, the central truth on which we build our lives. Father, if we've been following you for a long time, would you help us to be reminded of this truth daily so that we can keep living, not boasting in what we do, but in the light of the grace you have shown us. And Father, if we're here tonight and we have never trusted in Jesus, would you help us by your spirit to do so now? Father, we pray that as we go from this place tonight and into busy weeks, that we would not be so distracted by all of the things going on around us that we would forget your mercy. But this reminder of your glorious good news would spur us on to live with you and for you this coming week. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray.